Randy, when was the last time you lied to yourself? Ooh, Lily, that's pretty deep, very quickly. You know, I lie to myself all the time. It's so much better and easier than operating in the real world. How about you? (laughs) You can't handle the truth. Sorry, I had to get that in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's my vibe too. But it's probably not that healthy. So this week, I've got an expert on the subject who can help us identify when we're doing it, why we're doing it, and get us more comfortable with the truth. Ooh, that sounds great. Yeah, we've got Janice Fraser. She's an investor, speaker, and innovation leader that's worked in product for many years. And over that time, she's developed a method for coaching people like us to really get to the bottom of it all. So with our eyes wide open and our hearts on our sleeves, let's chat to Janice. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Janice, thank you so much for joining us. For anyone who hasn't watched your keynotes in San Francisco or London at the Mind the Product conferences or doesn't know you from any number of other things that you've done, can you just give us a a quick intro and tell us, how did you get into this whole product game anyway? Well, you know, I got into the product game a long, long time ago. I, um, you know, I actually started my product career at Netscape in 1996, right? Right after their IPO when Netscape was really the only browser that there was for the web and everything was new. So, you know, I kind of, I wandered my way into this work because nobody was doing it at the time. And so we had to kind of invent it. And that's really been the hallmark of my career ever since is like, since it's like, um, get to the edge of whatever we know how to do, um, hang out with some of the people who are really at the vanguard and then kind of make it boring. Right. So, you know, I want to make it so that regular people can do, can do things, you know, that move the field forward. That's where I am, whatever that field happens to be. And right now it's, it's product work. And so what do you do for a day job these days? Well, it's a good question. Um, I uh, don't have a day job. Um, I have many things. Um, my <laughs> husband and I are writing a book um, about kind of everyday leadership. And I uh, have a handful of very large organizations and I help them implement innovation um, in their organizations. Uh, so I'm working with the Air Force right now and uh, Procter & Gamble and uh, one or two other companies. And then I advise startups and I, I am an investor and an advisor to startup companies. So it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's the perfect product person, easily bored and trying not to stay that way. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Monday's like this. Monday afternoon might be like that. <laughs> So so you mentioned your book, and it's one of the themes from your book that we wanted to, to talk to you about. It was the uh, idea of uh, telling yourself the truth at work. So let's just jump straight into it. Why do we lie to ourselves all the time? 
That's a really good question, isn't it? Um, you know, when we lie to ourselves, there are a few things at work. And, you know, one of one of them, I think, is uh, it's just really easy to omit unpleasantness, right? So I think of this as lies of omission. So, you know, we just don't take a moment to pause and ask ourselves, like, what is the truth? What is true right now? What is present that I'm not really seeing um, at first glance? Um, you know, our brain is processing information at lightning speed, like literally lightning speed, um, way faster than our conscious mind can catch up with. And, um, you know, part of that is because the, like, I'm going to get a nerdy here a little bit, the prefrontal cortex, it turns out is only a 10th of an inch thick. You see these pictures of the brain and it's like the whole front of your brain is shown and it's labeled prefrontal cortex. Well, it turns out that's just a little wrapper, a little tiny thin wrapper. So, and the prefrontal cortex is where we do all of our conscious thought. So you actually have to invite thoughts onto the stage of your prefrontal cortex. Um, you know, if, if the PFC is the size of one cubic foot, the rest of the brain is actually the size of the Milky Way. Um, and so we cannot possibly consciously know everything all the time. Um, we have to take a moment or, you know, maybe it takes an hour. That would be for me um, to orient. And so, you know, one of the sections of her book is called Orient Honestly. Um, and, you know, to kind of give an example that we're probably all familiar with, facilitators use prompting questions. And that's because we know more than we think we do. And so that facilitator is inviting us to bring new thoughts to the forefront. And maybe they're not new thoughts, but they're, they're the thoughts that are just under our conscious mind at any given moment. Um, and you know, the, I think that the most relevant questions um, when it comes to telling yourself the truth at work are those ones that bring you the richer picture of the current date. What's true right now in this situation? You know, what are the inconveniences of this situation? What's making the situation complicated? Um, what makes the situation difficult for other people? Like all of those questions are going to help you orient honestly in this moment. So, for instance, before you go to a meeting, right? It's a really helpful practice to spend a couple minutes just getting that picture in your mind. And we can talk about meetings. I love talking about how much I hate meetings. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know, a second way that we lie to ourselves, um, is, you know, we've all experienced those automatic negative thoughts. And that's just a really good example of how we can't always believe what we think. So not all of our thoughts are true. Our, a thought is actually an unbidden chemical experience in our brain. And it's up to our conscious mind to make a decision about whether or not that thought is true. So, you know, a lot of people um, have an inner critic and we've seen this at some Mind the Product conferences, right? The inner critic is really harsh and, you know, not factual. And like, if you were to fact check your inner critic, you'd probably find that the facts do not support what that inner critic is saying. I mean, they say things like, I'm not capable. I'm not good enough. Those people don't respect me. Like I should have prepared more. All of those things are often, I would say, usually untrue, right? You've gotten to the place where you are because you were capable and your capability was recognized by people. And so, but, but the inner critic doesn't, doesn't acknowledge that it says untrue things um, and we have to choose not to believe them. So just going to the first part of that it to me it's almost like 
there's a level it's kind of like being self-aware but in a business context so kind of business aware but then the energy that it takes to be self-aware like it's quite it's actually takes less energy to just blindly carry on the way that you're going (laughs) so it's this kind of balance between expelling more energy in order to do your work so that you because actually having this business awareness or this kind of self-awareness allows you to then grow and learn more and move forward so is that how you see it like it's like uncovering the truth so that you can move forward because actually if you just drink the kool-aid and just you know stay in your happy comfortable place then you just get stuck basically I believe that there's a tremendous amount of waste um, at work, especially meetings are incredibly wasteful. And it is a sort of mindfulness practice. And that mindfulness practice is not just about yourself. It's about your own understanding of the situation. So it feels like it's easier to not take that moment or period of time to analyze what is true in this moment. But then you make more trouble for yourself five minutes later, right? So here's an example. So I was hired by a publicly traded company, probably two or three years after their IPO, um, to observe the leadership meetings. And they wanted to know how they could make their leadership meetings more effective. And so I, you know, joined the Zoom call, I put myself on mute, turned off my camera and just sat and observed. And, you know, the, the first meeting that I participated in, that I joined and observed, um, you know, they had great preparation. They did all the best practices. There was a pre-read that was very thoughtful. It laid out a strategic decision that needed to get made by the group. And these are people who are like, they're hot shots. You know, they're, they've been in their jobs and their careers for a long time and they're getting paid a lot of money. And it's, you know, it's like, they're C-level executives and they're direct reports, right? So you'd think that they'd be good at this. It's a strategic meeting, a strategic decision. And I'm going to tell you that meeting ran 90 minutes when it was scheduled for 45. And everybody was talking and talking and talking. There was both spoken and unspoken friction. Relationships were not improved by the interactions there. And they didn't ultimately make the strategic decision. And they left and the CEO was angry. And, um, you know, that was an extreme example of an unproductive meeting. But I think a lot of us spend hours and hours. And, and by the way, that meeting, probably just in terms of the compensation of the people in that room, was probably like $10,000. Like they just lit $10,000 on fire and made each other mad. Right? And And so if those people had taken a moment in advance of that meeting to say, what is the current situation? Um, They might've been able to say to themselves, some people aren't going to agree with the outcome. The only person in the room who has the actual knowledge to make this decision is the person who did the research. We should perhaps ask him questions if there are things we need to know. they were at the moment they were um, dealing with a network outage that was causing everyone a lot of stress. If you had acknowledged that current mood before going into the room, you could have said a few things at the beginning to avoid all of the, 
you know, what we call rat holes mm. that we go into. And it's, it's that acknowledgement of what is true. People will dis- disagree. No one really understands this decision anyway. And we're all under a tremendous amount of stress. Like if we had just walked into the room and, and said that out loud, perhaps it could have been a much more effective use of time. And I think one of the ways in which you describe this truth at work is uh, radical acceptance. Um, so what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> so I actually did not come up with this term myself. I borrowed it from psychology and they borrowed it from somebody else. The term radical acceptance, a radical candor we know of as, you know, the plain unvarnished truth shared with love for the benefit of another person's growth, right? This is that same unvarnished truth, also with love, for the benefit of ourselves and for the benefit of our current situation. So, you know, we we often um, make ourselves very unhappy and increase our own suffering by not accepting a truth that feels uncomfortable. And so radical acceptance is about taking a moment, again, maybe it's an hour, um, to explore and check the facts on, you know, what is true and untrue. And sometimes that's about, you know, maybe there's an uncomfortable situation and did I handle it well um, or not? but it's also a decision was made and it didn't go my way. And I can either fight, fight, fight um, against something that I have no control over, or I can sit and I can say, what do I have control over? And um, one of the things that's real is that when you do this radical acceptance, often what you're having to accept is that you do have more power than you think you do. You do have control over things, but they're not exactly the things you wish you had control and power over. So it's really a challenge to oneself in a variety of ways to say what is true in this moment and am I fighting that truth or am I accepting it? So two things on that. One is uh, I want to, I think you have a way of, uh, of actually putting into practice. So rather than the concept, what's the practical way of sitting down and doing this either by yourself or with someone else. But something else that, that just came out of that is you talked about doing it when uh, something's gone wrong, when you feel bad. Is that the only time you should do this? Should you also be doing it when, when things are going well? Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it, it's always, um, you know, it's a skill to start noticing when you're resisting accepting something. And when I notice myself being resistant, you know, I try to stop and have a think. And the first thing you have to ask is, what am I resisting? Like, I feel like I'm chafing here and I'm rubbing up against something. I wish something were different than it is. Like, what is that about? And once you see what it is, that you're resisting, then you can ask yourself to accept it. And, you know, radical acceptance is about accepting something all the way without reservation and acting on that acceptance, even though you might still be having trouble with it. And so, you know, for folks, let's talk about folks that have a really nasty inner critic. I I used to, and fortunately don't anymore, have just a really, really mean inner critic. My inner critic would just, you know, say terrible things. And sometimes, I had to check the facts, say, well, you know, look, look at what's happening currently. So this, this would be a process, right? This is, a, this is a, 
you know, first you note that there's resistance, that, some, that you're having some kind of difficulty accepting something. You get clear with yourself. You do a little bit of like self-reflection. What is the truth that I'm, that I'm avoiding right now? And then radical acceptance is you make a conscious decision to just accept that all the way. And then you decide what actions you can take given the available options. So it's pretty like straightforward when it comes down to it. And um, so in the, in the instance of an unsettling situation, one of the ways that I might approach that is to do what I call a six question retro, right? So something has happened. Um, it was a <clears throat> situation that I might be uncomfortable with after the fact, I'm just not feeling good about it. You say, well, well what was the unsettling situation? What happened? And I, I tend to do this with a notebook. I'll like, I'll sit down over a cup of coffee, I'll give myself an hour and I'll just do a little retro with myself with a pen, right? So what was the unsettling situation? How did it happen? So, you know, what was the lead up to it? Um, what effect did it have on me? And here I try to be very honest and truthful, professional, emotional, physical. And I want to emphasize being truthful does not mean being ne negative. Being truthful means being truthful, right? Um, sometimes I have a fear. So the truth is that I might have a fear that there's a professional negative blowback that might happen. But that the truth is the fear. The truth is not that there is professional negative blowback, right? Um, how did I contribute to the situation? How did other people contribute to the situation? And then what did I have control over in that situation? And by taking a look at those things, I'm gonna have a lot more awareness about, it's funny, there's always like some huge aha happens around, you know, question number three or four, where I realize like, I'm making a mountain out of a molehill with nothing, or, oh, wow, I really mishandled that. You know, here's what I wanna learn next. Um, so, you know, we, we talk a lot in product management about learning, as the real objective that's you know the objective of an agile practice is to have closed learning loops where we do iterations and we do the iterations so that we can learn more about about our software or our product and this is very similar but it's about um but but the learning objective is um effectiveness progress forward movement not getting stuck ourselves or with our colleagues so i'll pause there that was a lot <laughs> so Dennis, well, you've obviously been thinking this way or, or kind of studying this sort of way of uh, this mindset, if you like, for a while. And you mentioned that, you know, the process that you go through, but has that changed over the years? You kind of said that your inner critic is not as bad as it as it used to be. Has this process now put you in a very different place? And do you, is it is it a different process for you now? Or is it still the same, but just a shorter, shorter version. <laughs> um, so I started exploring these ways of thinking a very long time ago, like probably back in the 90s. And I started on a, you know, a personal, I always, I, I believe that, you know, a little better every day. That's my, that's my personal belief system. And that translated into an affinity for you know, user-centered design and an affinity for agile software development and all of these things, you can see how having that mindset would lead you to these kinds of practices. Um, and so in 
retrospect, I can say that we went back and forth, me and my work life, um, to develop this kind of philosophy over 20 years. Um, and we had the chance. So my husband, Jason, and I um, started a company called Luxor about 10 years ago. Uh, it was one of the first lean startup kind of coaching firms back back in the day. And it was eventually sort of acquired by Pivotal Software. And so we took a lot of these ideas and codified them and and practiced them really deliberately at Luxor and then at, at Pivotal and now he's at VMware. And so we had a lot of chance to really kind of go past our surface practice into real, as you say, studying them and then experimenting with them and then like trying them on others. Um, and uh, there were 50 companies that went through the Luxor programs and they all had to endure this kind of, um, <laughs> um, th these kinds of practices. And, and so that's how we ended up in this place where it's sort of routinized thinking for us. Um, and, you know, to be honest, we actually do these things at home as well. So, you know, our lucky kids <laughs> have post-it notes all over the walls and, you know, we talk about radical acceptance and we talk about, you know, um, checking the facts and that sort of thing. So it's, it is just part of our lives and it, it has contributed to a reduction in things like the inner critic and it, it has contributed to, I think, being more effective in our careers and getting a lot more done. So not everyone does this. Why do we in general have such a massive failure to ask these truth-seeking questions? What do we do instead? Um, oh, what do we do <laughs> instead? Um, not everyone seeks. So it is an innate part of human nature to avoid things that are uncomfortable. It's our instinct to um, make assumptions and draw conclusions, even when you don't have complete data, because that's faster and quicker. There's shortcuts. Our brain is perfectly suited to making shortcuts. That's what bias is, right? And so it's, it, it runs contrary to human nature to pause and ask, what is the truth that I'm not acknowledging right now? So the very behaviors that were highly adaptive and useful um, as we were evolving, now what we want is to have a little bit of balance where we leverage those behaviors. Let's just talk about biases. It's, it's still useful to leverage biases, but we all know that biases can get you into a lot of trouble because they are not fact-based, they're pattern matching based. And so what we want to do is, is step past our pattern matching mind and into a more fact-based mind, but not all the time, not every hour of every day, but to punctuate our natural instincts to shortcut with occasional moments of um, reflection or um, proactive consideration of, you know, what might actually be true that we're glossing over right now. And one of the other areas that you talked about um, in your Mind the Product talked was the concept of buy-in being dangerous. <laughs> so how does, this, true. how does this relate to the truth-telling um, 
and and why is it dangerous? So, you know, buy-in as a phrase is dangerous. Buy-in as a concept is, you know, is positive. It's helpful, right? Um, I just believe that the phrase buy-in is so ubiquitous now that um, we do it as a perfunctory surface activity. We quote unquote, get buy-in or we quote unquote, sell in the idea. And what we forget is that it's actually what we're looking for is support. And we're looking for support that's enduring. And when we think about buy-in, at least what I've observed among people who think a lot about getting buy-in is that it comes and goes, buy-in comes and goes. We fail to take that moment to notice whether we still have buy-in from the same people or we ask about buy-in in a very surface way. So do you still like this, right? That's not a question that's gonna get you a very deep, rich or accurate answer necessarily. People will tell you what they think that you wanna hear. And so buy-in as a phrase, it's just used in a very surface way. And I, I think it's a much more complicated concept. Um, and so I've developed a model that I've been using for over a decade now. I call it you bad, which is a little cultural appropriation. So I apologize for that, but you bad. Um, and it stands for the U is understanding and the B is belief. And those are the two things that enable someone to legitimately support or not support something. So you need them to understand it or you run the risk of having a really fragile kind of support. Belief, similarly, if someone understands a thing um, but doesn't necessarily believe it, they're undecided in their belief, well, that, that also is fragile. So you have these situations where buy-in comes and goes and it's because either they didn't believe it or they didn't understand it. So there was a situation where um, Pivotal Software uh, people would walk through the Pivotal software offices and they'd be blown away because they practice pair programming and it's all open. And, you know, they, it was just a very visually persuasive environment. And so uh, a very large financial institution said, I'm in. And they, you know, signed a contract for like half a million dollars or what have you. And the developers showed up on site, you know, four of their, of their, development, software development team came on site and they're like, wait a minute, we pair program, which is like one pivotal employee and one of the financial institutions employee all day, every day, no meetings, no taking time to do email. You break for lunch, you start at eight, you leave at six, that's it. Like you pair program. And so they, within a week, did kind of a metaphorical table flip and quit. And the client left. So they had made a purchase decision without actually understanding. They had a lot of belief, but did not have any understanding of what they were buying. So, you know, understanding and belief work together to create a really durable support. And you can tell that there's durable support um, with the other two parts of the model, the A and the D. A is for advocacy. So if you see someone explaining, so if one of those, you know, clients of Pivotal had been, you know, if you saw them explain, well, they do pair program, which means that they're going to sit together all day, every day, and they're going to write software code together. That advocacy would have 
reveal whether they believe or not in the solution. If it's accurate, it reveals that they understand it. If it's not accurate, it reveals that they don't understand it. So advocacy. And then the D is decision-making. If they make decisions that are aligned um, with belief and understanding, then you know that those decisions are going to last. So instead of instead of like getting buy-in, did you get buy-in? Yes, I got buy-in, right? Like instead of treating it in a surface kind of facile way, which leaves you really vulnerable to that buy-in disappearing, what I would rather do is think about, um, you know, understanding belief and then advocacy and decision-making. One of the things I've seen cause this to to be a problem in the past is, you know, we've got that trying to get strike the balance right between enthusiasm and practicality and making sure we read the room right. You know, sometimes I've seen people be way too critical and also be way too enthusiastic and just trying to get there. How do we how do we strike that balance with people and make sure we've got the the right temperature? How do we do this practically? Oh, that's a really good question. Really good question. And, you know, people have personalities that tend toward an overly positive um, surface interpretation or an overly negative surface interpretation. And so, and I, you know, I see this a lot in the startups that I advise and coach. Um, and, you know, the, I think that as an advisor, a mentor, a manager, um, we can do two things. One, we can help them be more self-aware. And that self-awareness is, you know, that's where radical candor comes in, um, right? You often, you know, hi friend, you often have a very positive interpretation and that optimism and that enthusiasm is fantastic. And here are some ways that you can check your own thinking. And then I would introduce them the, to them the idea that they can take a moment and prepare or take a moment afterwards and reflect and say, you know, um, what might what might I have missed? What is the positive or negative truth that I'm avoiding? Can I use radical acceptance to help me um, really get good at that? Because what what we can do then is really harness that strength that they have. So the critical person has a strength in um, yeah, let's think about it almost as error trapping, like of noticing the ways in which something could go wrong or noticing the ways in which your support might be soft. The positive person has a strength in seeing potential and um, seeing where there is support. And so we want to leverage and harness those really uh, strong attributes. But then we also want them to consciously be able to balance it out. Dennis, this has been so interesting. Um, I've really loved this conversation. Before we wrap up, um, because we are running out of time. Um, for those who are listening, and I'm sure most people will be thinking that this resonates in some way, shape or form with them, um, because it's such a kind of deep topic around the way that we work. And I think we can all be honest with ourselves that we don't always <laughs> tell ourselves the truth. Um, but do you have a top tip or like a sort of go to thing of like, uh, you know, this is something that you should definitely do, or you know, next time you're feeling this way, you should definitely do this. Is is there is there like a one thing that you would love people to take away from today? Yeah. So the the top tip is before, if you're when you are running a meeting, just take a moment and write out a point A. Where are we starting today? And include what makes this moment complicated. So if you're 
it, because we are taught to think about the goal of the meeting or the objective of the meeting, but think also about your starting point. Say, well, what makes it complicated enough that we have to have a meeting in order to, to solve for this, right? So where, where are we collectively starting today and what makes this moment complicated? And you'll have a much better meeting. I love that. That is such a good tip. Janice, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. That was fantastic. And I think we should both accept radical acceptance on the proviso that neither of us gives each other radical candor. (laughs) Just lie to each other all the time. It's worked so far. In a kind of positive way, though. Like, (laughs) you're just so amazing. Hang on, now that makes it sound like I'm lying. And that people are (laughs) listening to the end of the episode. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Well... If you enjoyed this, then tune in next week for more shenanigans. Shenanigans. (laughs) Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and... Me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash Product Tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm -hmm.